0: Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and this is Craig Clement. He's the chairman of our board of elders. And Craig, today is an anniversary, so it's kind of like a birthday. It's the five-year anniversary of Centerpoint starting in your living room. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. And how did it start out? How did you guys get this thing going? We had a group of guys that were meeting in Cracker Barrel and just wanted something different, wanted something real. And so we decided to meet in the living room together and have real relationships with each other and for us to have true teaching and for us to be able to, uh, to watch on video, uh, just be challenged each and every day. And so when you guys started in that living room, you met, you had some worship and then you had a message and then you kind of had some fellowship time and some group discussion uh, that followed that. What was interesting to me was how I got wind of the whole thing What you guys were doing was I found out you guys were watching messages that I had pre-recorded, uh, and you just went and got the DVDs and played them on your TV, right? We were watching you <laughs> in our living room. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and so what's funny was they were starting a new church. They didn't know. I had been praying for an opportunity to start a multi-site church where we would have extensions going all over the place where we could use videos in people's living rooms, and they were using my video in their living room, and uh, we'd never met. No. And so that was kind of an indication that God wanted us to work together. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, Craig, we're five years in. What most excites you about the next five years? Well, like, what's been amazing is for us to be able to have a site and then for us to go to Pike Road and for us to have Cloverdale and Matumka. And we just don't know where the Lord's going to take us next for the next five years. Yeah. And so uh, we're excited about the future. So we wanted you to know it's a happy birthday for Centerpoint five years in. Mm-hmm. Um But we hope you'll be praying for where God's going to take us in the next five years. And we're excited. Amen. Hi, we want to invite you to our night of praise in Prattville. It's at the Marriott Conference Center, October 26th at 6 o'clock. We are excited about a powerful evening of praise and worship through song as we enter into God's presence. Child care will be available for birth through four years old. So mark your calendars. You don't want to miss it. Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and we are so glad you're with us today uh, for this next installment of uh, Living as a Believer in an Unbelieving World. We're going to look at uh, a number of lessons that Paul gave some early Christians in the ancient city of Corinth in a letter that we would call 1 Corinthians. They're letters to a church that was about five years old, and as you saw in a video today, we're right at five years old. And some of the instructions Paul gave to the believers then are just as relevant as reading the newspaper today. So today we've got some great instructions um, that apply to all of us. There's an outline inside your bulletin entitled, Believers Genuinely Love Each Other. If I'm going to be a believer in an unbelieving world, if you are, then we need to genuinely love each other. We want to welcome all those who are worshiping with us via video at Pike Road and at Cloverdale and Wetumpka and elsewhere on the web. We're glad you're along too. But there are some uh, important teachings that uh, in God's Word that tell us how we need to live today if we want people to take our message seriously. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, I don't want to be a hypocrite or a fraud. I don't want to uh, proclaim a message that no one's going to believe in. I'd like to proclaim a message that I actually live out. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak and you'd move me out of the way, teach us some things we need to know about being authentic believers in an unbelieving world. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. There are a number of blanks on your outline. If you need a pen to fill in the blanks, take some notes, just raise your hand and uh, ushers will bring those to you. When believers genuinely love each other, this is point A on your outline, unbelievers will take our message seriously. Unbelievers will take our message seriously. If you're wondering who came up with that idea, well, Jesus did. This is John 13, 34 and following. I'm giving you a new commandment, Jesus said, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other, and your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. He shared that with his disciples on Thursday before he was crucified on Good Friday. Uh, some of you have even noticed this during the Easter season, that that's called Monday Thursday, and you might be going, why do they call it Monday Thursday? What's that about? Well, it's not Monday, it's Monday, and it's kind of middle English from the Latin would have been mandatum for commandment. This is mandatum novum, uh, or something like this in Latin. My Latin isn't very good, so I'm going to get emails telling me I didn't pronounce that correctly. I understand. But the idea was, this is a new commandment. And the new commandment was, Jesus said, look, I'm dying for you. I suffered for you. I came to serve you and love you. So here's the new commandment I'm giving you guys. Love each other the way I loved you. And if you do that, people know that you're my disciples. You're acting like me. So if you and I want to authenticate our faith in Christ, we need to genuinely love each other. Not just on the Thursday before Easter, but all throughout the year. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he defined what that kind of authentic love would look like, by the way. This is from 1 Corinthians 13. Authentic love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. And please circle the words, demand its own way. Genuine love doesn't do that. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. You know, when I had you circle, it doesn't demand its own way. I had you circle that for a reason. There's a uh, story that's often told about the couple that um, came to see the pastor, after years of bickering and fighting and not getting along, they finally went and got, some pastoral, counsel, got some pastoral counsel, and the, you know, the pastor was just kind of exasperated, listened for a while, and he said, well, boil it down for me. He turned to the, the man, and he said, what's the problem in your marriage? And he said, well, my wife is just selfish. And she said, I just can't believe you said that. She goes, all I ever asked for is one thing. I only want one thing. And the pastor said, what's that? And she said, my own way. I mean, that's all I want. My own way, just one thing. And if you boil it down, that's what a lot of us want. I just want my own way. I mean, you get along fine with me as long as I get whatever I want. And if you and I are going to live out our faith, if we are going to be believers in an unbelieving world, then somewhere along the line we've got to say, hey, I'm not going to just live my own way. I'm going to genuinely love others. It brings us to a life application. That kind of love is a choice. You and I must choose to love others. Again, our culture has co-opted this and has said that love is a feeling. And you know you fall in love, you fall out of love, it's a pothole in life. Kind of bump through love. And I was in it for a while and then I bumped out again. I don't know what happened. But the, Bible, the love that the Bible talks about isn't that way. It's not goosebumps that comes on every time you hear a certain song or other things like this. True love is a choice. We talked about this a month ago. And when we talk about how to love people more, if we're going to really love people the way Christ does, then we need to put others first and be kind and serve others and invest in them. We've got to choose to do those things. I mean, I'm going to be patient and kind. Well, there are a lot of times I don't wake up in the morning going, today my goal is to be patient and kind. I've got to pray about that. I've got to choose that. Some days I wake up and I feel fussy, and so do you, because I've met you on those days, okay? And that's true. And if I get cut off in traffic, I, don't, I have to choose to not be irritable and rude. Because I don't feel like that. And you have to choose that too. And again, it all goes back to, do I want to live like a believer in an unbelieving world? This is what's going to authenticate our message. How we treat each other matters greatly. Jesus said so. And he was right to say so. Why on earth would people take us seriously? Our message is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He came into the world to save us, and his followers want to pass that forgiveness on. Well, why would anybody believe that if we're not even willing to forgive each other? Our message is that if you surrender your heart to Christ, that Christ will come into your heart, he'll place his Holy Spirit in you and change you from the inside out, but then we're not even kind to each other? That's all hogwash. And so if believers are going to genuinely love each other, It's got to show up. I mean, it'll it'll authenticate our message because if our message is true, it's got to show up in the way we live. Brings us to point B, and this is Paul's instructions to the Corinthians here. And I've I've taken several places out of this letter where he comes back to this theme. When believers take each other to court, unbelievers won't take our message seriously. What inspired this letter was Paul had started the church in Corinth, had been there a number of years, left gone on other missionary journeys, had been in Ephesus for a while, and some people from Corinth came, and they brought him a donation, and he said, hey, how are things going back in Corinth? How's the church getting along? And they said, well, you know, some things are good, but we got some problems, Paul, and we got some questions. And so this letter that we call 1 Corinthians is a letter where Paul addressed those problems and answered their questions. And one of the questions was they were having believers taking each other to a small claims court. When they had a disagreement over property or some other matter, they were Taking it to court, they weren't resolving it themselves. They weren't asking other Christians in the church to help them work out their disagreements. They were going to court in front of unbelievers. Now Corinth was a major city in the in the ancient world, major seaport, major commercial center for all of Greece. There were a dozen or so temples to pagan deities, Zeus and Aphrodite and others, and so the Christian faith was just one of many faiths. There was lots of sexual immorality, lots of sin, for sale cheap, lots of materialism. And Paul was telling them, hey, you got to live this thing out. And here these people were proclaiming this message of Christ resurrected, of power through the Holy Spirit. And man, they're taking each other to court and people going, ah, this isn't any different. I mean, listen to what he wrote. When one of you has a dispute with another believer... How dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to the outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who's wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and you cheat even your fellow believers. And Paul wrote this to the folks then, and this was long before Facebook. I mean, his whole point is here, he goes... Man, you got all this junk going on and now you're going to go and air your grievances in a public court? Look, I mean, problems between Christians are going to happen. That's inevitable. We're going to have conflict, but how will we resolve it? Paul says you need to resolve things in a way that isn't going to damage the gospel. That's the life application here. Our lives should bring credibility, credibility to our message, credibility to the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world. When Paul wrote to Titus, he wrote instructions to Timothy, one of his understudies. Titus was another. He said, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. I mean, how we live impacts our teaching. Because if we don't practice what we preach, then people go, well, then just save it. I've heard lots of messages. I mean, if you take the newspaper, and I know, like, Nobody does anymore. Okay, I go out in the morning and pick up the newspaper. There's nobody else in the street. That poor kid with a newspaper, right? He's going to wear himself out, okay? Uh, but the thing is, if you follow the newspaper at all this last week, the Montgomery Advertiser, probably four days in the last week, the front page has been covered with a church where a pastor misused church funds and had improper relationships with women in the church, he even confessed to all of it, but then refused to resign. And so the church was forced to take him to court. Made the front page of the paper. Finally, he resigned, and all this, which is good, but it made national news on several websites as well. And man, if you read the quotes down below, whew, people mocking Christianity, mocking church. Every single church gets a black eye when people live this way. Well, let's not add to it. And Paul is saying, hey, if you got grievances, don't go air your dirty laundry. Resolve it. If you need help, there's got to be somebody in the church who can help you resolve it. I mean, this is a defeat for you already. Why are you going to act like unbelievers? I mean, that's what the unbelievers do. We're trying to live as a believer in an unbelieving world. There are plenty of people who don't know Christ. They're going to say all kinds of junk on Twitter or Facebook about others unashamedly. And then if a Christian does it, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Oh, so you can spread stuff about me on the internet as well? No, thanks. I got enough enemies already. So you can drag me into court like you did that guy? No, thanks. I got enough legal troubles. And so Paul says, our lifestyle should bring credibility to the gospel, not shame. John talked about this too in First John 4.20. If someone says, I love God, but hates his Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. Look, I know this is vague, so let me read this again, okay? This probably wasn't clear. Let me be clear on this. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we can't see? And that's exactly what unbelievers want to know you tell them about this God you can't see, I don't believe any of it. Because look at the way you treat people you can see. And that's what Jesus was talking about. This is a new commandment. It's what Paul was talking about. Love doesn't demand its own way. And so if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, first thing I get straight is I'm going to settle conflict in an appropriate manner and not air grievances out in public and give Christianity a black eye. Brings us to point C. The other thing I'm going to do is realize is that mature believers limit their freedoms in order to build up those who are young in the faith. Mature believers will limit their freedoms. When you become a Christian, it takes a while to develop convictions. You don't know the whole Bible. You haven't read it. You certainly don't know how to apply it. And so there can be a lot of confusion about things. And if someone came out of a lifestyle where there was a lot of drinking and other things, and then they go to somebody's house and they're having a glass of wine with dinner, oh, maybe they watched a lot of filthy movies, and then they have a friend, who, and then, so they're against movies altogether, and then somebody else goes to see a movie, and it's like, oh my goodness. And they're trying to figure out, what are the rules? Where is the instructions about where Christians can only go see G-movies? Where are the instructions about dancing? Because you know it's okay for Christians to square dance, but not any other kind of dance. (laughs) And there will be all these kind of rules type of thing, and people will want those things, and a mature believer can go, come on now. We're saved by grace. It's not whether you square dance or two-step or something else that will get you into heaven. But for a young believer, these are big concerns. And so there are some issues that aren't commandments in Scripture, And Paul says, we've got to be very careful about our freedoms as we work these things out because Christians have disagreed with these things all throughout the ages. And Paul was making very clear that he wanted the Corinthians to handle this in the right way. In their situation, in their particular circumstance, they had to deal with meat, like protein. I mean, meat. What happened was, because they had all these temples, they would offer animal sacrifices to these deities. So an animal would be sacrificed... In front of a stone altar to a god or a goddess well the deity didn't eat the meat so it was left there and what did they do with it well after the sacrifice was done they would then sell the meat to a butcher shop so it could be sold and people could eat it and then they'd use the money to pay their expenses or salaries or whatever archaeologists have also found big rooms off the side of a number of these temples where they'd have big banquets, and apparently they would have you know, get-togethers every so often where they'd have a big cookout. And they would serve the meat to people, and people would invite their friends, and they'd come over and eat. Well, there were Christians in Corinth who'd been Christians for a while, and they realized this statue of a god or a goddess, no matter how impressive, was just a block of stone or wood. And that a sacrifice to it wasn't anything at all. But there were other people who'd been a part of that worship cult, who had worship that deity, and for them to eat meat, even if it had been sold at a public market or other things, was going, somehow this was subsidizing the work of the devil. And any Christian who ate that meat, man, they were selling out on their faith. And so it was a real crisis of conscience. And so here's what Paul wrote about this. And I'm going to start reading at the bottom of your page. You'll have to flip over to keep up with me, but it's on the back side. But we know there's only one God, the Father. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter, t- uh, chapter 8. We know there's only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we live for him. There's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, to whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. If you flip it over, please. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to think of these idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat, We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your quote-unquote superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has um, been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong... You're sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. And so Paul was even talking about this. Look, if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, then I'm going to make sure that the newbies, the new believers that come along, I'm going to make sure I don't cause problems. For them. I'm not going to put stumbling blocks in front of them. I'm going to help them out. If they have a conscience against the meat, then let's not eat meat. Let's go someplace else. If they have a conscience against dancing, let's not go dancing. And Paul says, look, if we live that way and we put others ahead of ourselves, if we don't demand our own way, well then we can help the other people grow strong even though they're living in a sinful culture. Apparently some of the people in Corinth weren't acting that way at all. In fact, when they would come across this discussion of eating meat or other things they were coming across like oh i remember when i was a young spiritual taught and i thought such simple things too you need to grow up and when you grow up and become mature like me you'll understand that this is no big deal hamburgers hamburger and paul was writing because that was really offending a lot of people how do i know that because there's a note in your outline this is first corinthians 8 1 knowledge puffs up but love builds up And if the idea of dancing to uh, popular dance steps or square dancing is a real issue to somebody or other things like that, and I use that as an example, say that would be the case, then we'd have to say, hey, look, if somebody's really struggling with rules and wants just a hard list of all the rules that Christians do, I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to help them study the Bible and look at issues one at a time and help them develop godly convictions. I'm not going to brag about how much I know and remind them of how smart I am, because love is more important than knowledge. I could know all this stuff, but if it just makes me puff out my chest and talk about how great I am, Paul says, "Save it. It's worthless. He writes more about it in First Corinthians chapter 10. He says, "You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything's good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what's best for others so that many may be saved. And now we're right back to what Jesus said. Your love for each other will prove to the world that you're the real thing. So if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, why would I air my grievances in a public forum in front of strangers? Why would I make fun of new believers when they're hammering out their convictions? Why wouldn't I be patient with them and limit my own freedoms so I could help them grow up? If I'm a real believer living in an unbelieving world, I will. Now, these things apply to us too, y'all. We've got to work on this. One more section of 1 Corinthians. How does a believer live in an unbelieving world? Well, believers observe the Lord's Supper regularly. We do that here and we will today to celebrate Christ's selfless, selfless and sacrificial love. This is the opposite of selfish. Now, you need to understand something else in historical context as well. The Corinthians would gather together on Sundays, and they didn't have Sundays off like we do, so they had to gather on Sunday evenings after work to have a love feast, is what they called it. We would translate that as potluck, okay? You'd bring food. If you had a lot of income, you'd bring a lot of food. If you were poor, you'd bring what you could. They'd put it all on a table, and everyone was to eat together, and the last part of the meal, kind of like dessert for everyone, would be the Lord's Supper where they'd take the bread, and they'd take the wine, and they'd celebrate what Christ did for them on the cross. It was called a love feast. And it was supposed to be a time when they gathered together for fellowship to recognize old, young, rich, poor, male, female, God had brought them all together. They were sharing all they had, and it would be a time when they would remind each other they were all in this together, and to remind each other how great Christ was, because he died on the cross for our sins. He was selfless, not selfish, and we're going to be just like him. So when the people came to visit Paul in Ephesus, and he asked them, hey, how are things going in Corinth? How are those love feast things going? Yeah, wow. Well, sorry, Paul, they're not going too well. Why? What's happening? Well, you know, we kind of got to do this after work, and so some of the people get there, and they put out a lot of food, and then we don't wait until everybody gets there, so we a lot of times run out. And there's some gluttons, people who struggle with gluttony before they became Christians, and they're still practicing that, and so they kind of eat all the food, and then the poor people get in there, there's nothing for them. And there are other people who drink too much, and so they come there, and we always run out of wine for communion, and some of the people are just getting smashed. I mean, they're drinking it all. And Paul's going, oh, yeah, that's not the point. I mean, listen to what he wrote. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? I mean, you could circle disgrace and shame again. Remember, it's a defeat for you if you drag this out in court. Well, it's a defeat for you, too, when you invite a friend to finally come to church to a love feast, and we're going to have dinner together, and we're going to celebrate communion. And then they get there, and there's some glutton in the corner stuffed, and somebody else has passed out because they drank too much. And they go, Look, I've seen gluttons and drunkards before. Why do I need this? It's a disgrace. Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? You want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you. Not for this. For I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself on the night when he was betrayed, when Judas betrayed him on that Thursday. The Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ, body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And Paul said, look, you're missing the whole point. The night before he was crucified for us, Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. The point of breaking the bread was saying, my body is broken for you. Jesus was innocent, yet he was punished for me. The whole point of communion is to remind ourselves of how selfless Jesus was, of his great love for us. He didn't have to love us. He chose to love us. And the whole idea behind eating and drinking is to say, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is, I want this same attitude in me. I want Christ in me. So why would I go and get drunk? Or why would I be selfish at a feast that's all about being selfless? That doesn't make any sense. Shall I praise you for this? I think I shall not. Okay, I mean, I love that. I shall not. Now look, most of us, when we have communion and other things here, we have a small piece of bread and small cups of grape juice. There's no danger of us running out. We live in a blessed place with abundance. But I got to tell you, it's not that far away from us. This summer, a few of us went down to Mexico, and while we were there, we had a chance to worship with a church where we were building a home for a couple that had their first home. And they had a big spread for us one day, and they had a lot of food and other things. And I asked them; they were bagging up all the stuff that was left over. They didn't throw away anything. And I asked them, "What would they do with this?" And one of the translators said, "Well, you one of the people that had come to worship the night before, they went and took some food to his house and other things." And it, What's going on with that? He said, well, he didn't eat yesterday. And they were taking leftovers. um, I don't know what that's like to just have no food. And so when they have a, a feast or other things, I mean, they're very sensitive to this. There's members of their church who didn't eat. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And Paul says, okay, so let me get this straight. You're coming to a celebration of communion If you want to eat and drink and stuff yourselves, do that at home. This is a special feast to remind everybody of how great Jesus is and that we are his body. If you want to go stuff yourselves, stuff yourselves at home. But you come here, make sure you wait for each other. Make sure the poor get something to eat. What in the world? There's a life application for you and I in this. We must examine ourselves. Before we eat the Lord's Supper together too. Nobody here is getting drunk on that. No, no. Besides we use grape juice, you couldn't. Nobody here is eating all the crackers that, you know, that we use or communion wafer things. It's like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. So how would this apply to us? Well, here's how it would apply to us. What if, they, what if that same attitude of selfishness was just as alive in me as it, is, as it was in the lives of those Corinthians? What if I would come to a communion meal unwilling to forgive somebody else who defended me? Lord, I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want my sins washed away. I believe the blood of Jesus washed them all away, but I am never going to forgive her. I am never going to forgive him. Now remember, the world has seen plenty of grudges and plenty of unforgiveness The world is looking for people who forgive others. And Paul says, hey, if you're going to live as a believer in an unbelieving world, make sure you eat this with the right attitude. Examine yourselves. And if you think, well, that could never happen in church. I could tell you of a church in Kansas where you had two brothers that were arguing over a property dispute, hadn't talked in 20 years. One would walk in one door and sit on one side of the church, another would walk on the other side and sit on the other side of the church, and they took communion every time it was served. Unworthily, And if you and I are unwilling to forgive someone else, then Paul, says, Paul would say, well, then don't bother because this is all about forgiveness. I want this same attitude in me that was in Christ Jesus when he forgave me. If I have a habit that's out of control, just like the gluttons or the drunkards in Corinth, I can't control my tongue. I've got a filthy, sinful habit, and I'm not willing to deal with it. Well, what's the difference with that with the people who are eating and drinking all the food and the drink? And so we're supposed to examine ourselves and say, God, is there a part of my life that I won't surrender? I remember the first time I heard this explained in a sermon, there was somebody else in the room that I had something against. And I was pretty convinced it was more his fault than mine. But anyway, that's beside the point. I remember the pastor saying, we're going to have communion here. And if there's somebody in the room you need to get right with, then you need to make it right before you come. I was going, good night, how hard is this going to be today? Well, apparently God got a hold of that other person too because we made eye contact. And remember, how am I going to love God whom I can't see when I don't love my brother whom I can see? And I was looking at him. So when everybody got up to take communion, we met in the... Lobby area, and I said, "Well, I'll forgive you." And he said, "Well, I'll forgive you." And I said, "Well, you better." No, I didn't. I didn't say no. I did not. I, no, I did not. It was mutual. And then we could take communion with our hearts right. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? I want to be like Christ, because if I love my brother, then that will be evidence that the world to the world, to what we believe is true. Not the size of church buildings. Not the number of people in attendance. Not how well we sing. Not how well we can recite a doctrinal statement. Not how much scripture we've memorized. None of those things will convince the world as well as how I treat my brother and my sister in Christ. If I'm going to be a believer in an unbelieving world. We're going to take communion here in just a minute, but we need to examine ourselves before we do. To help us, I'd ask you just to look at this verse with me. Psalm 139, or these two verses, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David wrote, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Am I living in such a way that is going to cause somebody else to stumble? And I go, yeah, but I don't care. It's my life. I probably need to repent of that. Am I unwilling to forgive others? Am I willing to air my grievances publicly? Or am I going to do things in such a way that brings glory to God and make sure that my actions legitimize my faith? Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I don't want to play games with my faith. I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I just want to be an authentic Christian. And Lord, I can't be a very good Christian if I'm not willing to love people that are right next to me. How can I claim to love you whom I can't see when I won't love my brother or sister whom I can? And why would I want to go and air grievances in a public forum that would bring disgrace and shame on the gospel and compromise my ability to tell others about you? And why would I want to brag about how smart I am and become prideful when I'm a sinner like everybody else? No, Lord, I don't want to eat of the bread or drink of the cup unless my heart is right. In just a moment of silence, would you ask God to examine your heart and show you if there's something that needs to change? Is there a habit out of control? Is there a grudge you won't let go of? Is there open sin and rebellion in your life? If so, confess it now and say, God, I'm a sinner. That's why I'm taking communion. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. Oh, Lord, forgive us of our sins. There are many. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us, Lord, for being so self-absorbed. We give you our lives again. We surrender them anew. In the name of Christ.